You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. and welcome to episode 47 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, well, I'm very excited today, Val. I'm having an exciting morning, which is my favourite kind of morning because um, I had the cover reveal for Prisoner of the Black Hawk, which is, Woo! of course, book two in the Mapmaker Chronicle series. So it's such an exciting day when you do this kind of stuff because you put it out there and then you wait to see what kind of happens and then yes. there's a whirl of excitement and comments and likes and it just gives you a little buzz. I mean, we live for this stuff, don't we, when we're sitting around in our offices all day doing, you know, by ourselves, <laughs> writing. And we'll writing. put a link to the cover reveal, yes. which is on Alison's site. It's fantastic. I'm looking at it now. It's awesome. It is a great cover. I have to say, Ashet um, has done a brilliant job with both the covers. I've been so excited mm. by them. And I was wondering how they were going to um, follow up the uh, first one because it was, you know, so good. Um, but I think they've done a great job. But I was, I was kind of surprised. I have to say, you know, I think as an author, you kind of get an idea in your head of what your cover is going to look like, even without really thinking about it too much. And I was completely and utterly sure that that cover was going to be red. Okay. Yeah, I was totally <laughs> sure. And and then they sort of sent it through to me and it was green and I was like, I really like this, but I thought it would be red. And they're like, why would you think that? Yeah, why did you think that? <laughs> I don't know. I just sort of thought, well, there was one pati- there's one particular scene in the book that I, I thought they would choose for the cover um, and it would have lent itself to red. And somehow the second book, I just thought red. I, I, mean, I don't know. Like it was, but um, I was talking to my oldest son about it before we saw the cover and he was pretty convinced it was going to be red too. So I don't know if it's like a, you know, blue is first, mm. red is second, green mm. is third, but it's actually, it's quite different um, to what I was expecting, but I love it. I love it. That's it's fantastic. It's yeah. just, yeah, it makes you want to reach out there and buy it. Good. Okay, great. Go get yourself one. <laughs> so that's Not what you've been doing then. You're excited? Mm, I am excited. Um, and I'm also um, a little bit chuffed as well because I came across a blog post this week um, by one of our listeners and her name is Tracy Hamill, or is it Tracy Hamill? I think it may not be Tracy Hamill because she talks about what's in a name and mm. she discusses the fact that she's been listening to our podcast and she talks about the fact that we, you know, we were talking about pseudonyms a little while ago and how most of the people we know who start out writing a blog under another name or under a, like my life in a pink fibre, for example, which is what my blog started eventually come back to their own name just to keep everything simple because if you're working with lots and lots of different things you need a home base for all those things and that home base is you um anyway so she's written a terrific blog post about her thought process of um after she's listened to that and i was just so chuffed that um she's one of our actors she's one of those people who's listening to what what we've said and is actually acting on it and i i just want to say thank you tracy and thank you for your blog post 
Yeah, awesome. And we'll put that link in the show notes as well. We it's will. In- it's interesting that you talk about the pseudonym because I was actually speaking at a big event on the weekend mm-hmm. and it was called the Key Person of Influence um, Brand Accelerator Day. <laughs> and it's mainly for business owners who want to build their profile, but primarily through writing a book. So there, everyone who attended is a business owner, but they are also very interested in writing and very interested in writing a, a book to promote themselves. Um, but some of them are also interested in writing fiction. And one guy did come up to me and he was asking me whether uh, he, whether I felt that he needed a pseudonym for fiction and whether that would hurt his business, which was an interesting question. That is an interesting question. And how did you respond to that, Valerie? I said, um, uh, no, oh no, uh, no, his question was whether it would help his business. Sorry. Uh, and I sort of said, well, no, no, I, <laughs> because yeah. they're two different things. I, I said that I don't think it'll necessarily, I, I don't think it'll help your business, business, but so, and then he said, so I should definitely have a different name then. And I said, no, 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 that's not what I said. I don't think having a pseudonym for your fiction will help your business, but it certainly won't hurt it. Mm. So, um, yeah, he, he felt the need to keep things very separate. And I met up with uh, a few other people who, like I met up with one guy who had three different Twitter handles. Wow. Because, um, and I just said, well, what are they about? And he told me. And the thing is, they were all about related things. So it's not like he was doing about baking in one and back pain in another and fitness in another. They were, they were all related to software and, you know, um, he was curating articles and books and information about this particular kind of software. So there was absolutely no need for him to have three different identities because they were also definitely related. Obviously, if you do have really diverse interests, you might have, you know, one for food and one for IT and that's fine. (laughs) Why, Why did he have three different ones? Why did he think, why did he feel he needed to do that? He felt that he... Well, I don't think he knew for sure. I think he felt that um, one was just going to be curated content and one was just going to be his personal life and one was just going to be about his business. But they were all interconnected. Mm. So, you know, I think that uh, he was going to go home and consolidate them all. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of exhausted just thinking about trying to run three of my own. Like it's, I mean, I run several different um, Twitter accounts for different people Mm. and that's a slightly different setup. But even that's exhausting because it's sort of like, you know, there's so much great content. There's only so much great. And I mean, I'm talking about really, really good content. You got to think about very carefully about where you're going to put it. And that, that seems like too hard basket if you're dealing with your own three accounts. Definitely. Who mm. needs to be so schizophrenic? Who does? So what is happening in the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week? Well, why don't you tell me, Valerie, because I know that you have a thousand things that you want to discuss this week. <laughs> there, there is one that I, I know you want to talk to me about and, and you know it's going to make me cranky. So let's get that one out of the way before okay. we go any further. We all want right? to get Al's crankiness out of the way. We do. Let's get the crank early. Let's get the cranky out done and done done and dusted now. All right. So there was a post this week by Anne Bauer and it appeared on salon.com. And uh, she has the headline is sponsored, as in inverted commas, sponsored by my husband. Why it's a problem that writers never talk about where their money comes from. And she says, the truth is my husband's hefty salary makes my life as a writer 
easy. Pretending otherwise doesn't help anyone. Mm. And in the post, she basically goes on to explain that she's able to, you know, indulge in her creative passion because she's essentially supported by her husband. Why does Mm. it make you so angry? Oh, because it's just this wafty writers with a capital W who sit around and do nothing but stare at walls just make me so cross. I am not sponsored by my husband. I work really hard. I fit my writing in. I have two children and I know a lot of people out there that are doing the same. And to think for her to say that you need a husband with a hefty salary to be a writer Mm. is what makes me so cross. Because I just don't, I just don't believe that that's true. I think if you if you want to be the kind of writer that you see in movies who sit around in their satin dressing gowns, you know, penning a few words every day, then maybe yes, you can be that. You know, you need to be that. But, but, but writers write. You know, I, I'm not. I am no less of a writer because I have to write a thousand different things before I get to my fiction. Mm-hmm. And everyone out there who is trying to fit their writing in around all the other things. Um, they're no less writers. If you have to have a day job to support your writing, then that's what you have to do. And I think that this business of pretending that you are a lesser writer because you have a day job or because you have to do other things, that makes me cross, really cross. Are you getting that vibe? Because if I'm not giving you that vibe, then I've got my wrong tone of voice on. (laughs) I'm getting that vibe. And she says, uh, Anne Bauer says, Today I'm essentially sponsored by this very loving man who shows up at the end of the day, asks me how the writing went, pours me a glass of wine, then takes me out to eat. He accompanies me when I travel 500 miles to do a 75-minute reading, manages my finances, and never complains that my dark, heady little books have resulted in low advances and rather modest sales. Ah, just (laughs) don't even go any further. I mean, look, the problem with this also is... Her, her espousing this lifestyle as the only lifestyle you can have to be a writer is very problematic to me. I just, I just feel like that's, that's as much of a mystique of the writer thing as, as anything else that they're talking about. I, I don't think it's a problem that writers don't talk about where their money comes from. You know, I think the fact of the matter is most people don't get bowled up to in the street and asked where their money comes from. (laughs) Let's just assume that writers are working as hard as everybody else doing whatever it is that they have to do to pay the bills. We don't have to go into what those details are. And, yes, there are some who are making a million from their book sales. And good luck to them. I love them and I hope to be one one day. I'm not, but that's okay. It gives me something to aspire to. (laughs) And um, I think that – well, I take issue with um, that he manages her finances. I think Mm. that you should (laughs) manage your own finances. (laughs) Oh, Val, (laughs) I love your work. so true. No, it's so true. I was talking to an author the other day and we were discussing something and negotiating something and we had a really productive meeting and it was, um, you know, I thought this is great. I can really work with this person. And she went away and she came back with some questions, but instead of just coming back, which is completely fine. And, but instead of just coming back with some questions and asking me the questions, she said, my husband said, and then she asked the question. At which point (laughs) I was like, oh, okay, well, you obviously can't think for yourself. So um, Mm. this is going to change the nature of my opinion of you and how much I I think I can rely on you. (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay. Well, I just think, yeah, look, I I think that we – 
we uh, see problematic. This whole link was always going to be problematic for me because it makes me so incoherently cross. Okay, so we, we should move on. Before, we should move on. Let's um, move Alice on. And yeah. And Nana. yeah, let's do that. So uh, another link that I have found, and well, I didn't really find it because I'm quoted in it, <laughs> is oh, there you on go. Arts Hub, and it's an article on getting the most out of writing competitions. And um, they've quoted various people, and one of the things that I well, I, before I you know talk about what I think, what do you think about writing competitions? Do you think that uh, they're worthwhile? Do you think that writers should enter them? What? Well, I think it's they're quite an interesting thing. I I've only ever entered a few competitions in my life, and it was quite early on in my. Um, writing career uh, in my fiction writing career and I entered them mostly for feedback because I wanted to see kind of like I'd been writing um, manuscripts for a little while and I just wanted to see where like I was kind of sitting with things Mm. Um, and I didn't win uh, the competitions which is you know totally fine I didn't expect to win so I was after some, some feedback but the feedback I got and I entered three competitions the feedback I got each time was so polarizing like it was it was essentially like I got comments from three judges on each of those three competitions and in each of those cases somebody loved it somebody hated it and somebody thought it was okay in each of those on each of those occasions which left me none the wiser um so I pretty much decided at that point that maybe that wasn't going to be the best way for me to receive the feedback I was after Mm. um so that's my yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it, I'm all for it if you are happy to take the critique. Yes. Mm. Well, I think that writing competitions are great for the deadline. Quite simple. Yeah. Because so yeah. many people just talk about writing or say that they're going to get to that story that's in their drawer or whatever, and they just never get to it. Whereas if you have a deadline for a competition, it just gives you that momentum and something to work for and you have no choice but to submit it by a certain date. Now, I agree that, um, you know, and depending on who's giving the feedback, the feedback can be variable. But for me, the more important part is just to get off your bum. And get and it done. To, yeah, just get something out there. And that's what I think writing competitions are useful for. Even if it's, you know, whether you win or not, it doesn't matter. Um I think it's worthwhile. I think I th- so too for that. That's a great reason to do it. As mm. you say, it gives you, it gives you a deadline and a strict deadline, which has to be, you know, adhered to. There's so many of them now though, Val. That's the other thing. There just yeah. seems to be so many competitions. Like how do you decide which ones to go for? Well... You can well obviously you can go for the ones that you know suit your particular genre or have really big prize money or whatever. But something that I encourage writers to do, mm. which I reckon many writers do not think of, and I used to do this a lot back in the day, uh, but not so much now, is um, sure there's all these writing competitions where you can write a short story or you can write a whatever, um, you know, ten thousand words, five thousand words. But think about the other competitions out there that aren't necessarily writing competitions but which rely on writing for the entry. Oh. Now, I used to re- I used to do these. Here we go. And I used to win things all the time. Is this your 25 words or less, you know, oh, not necessarily to win as, a Barbie doll? As, as something as simple as that. Usually there's some, like there's a submission process of sorts and it's a bit more comprehensive than 25 words or less. Mm-hmm. Although I used to enter those two and I used to win them as well. Where did you go? I know. What, it was this competition. What was your best prize? Oh, gosh. I've won so many different things in competitions. I can't even remember. I've won everything from, you know, watches to kids 
kitchenware to, you know, get a um, sports car for a week to... Um, <laughs> I had no idea that you were a closet competition entry. Yeah, not as much now, but definitely back then. But because I really drew on my writing, I made a real effort in my entry and, um, and uh, you know, it, it paid off. So I, I did like won $3,000 in one month. Um, and, that wasn't, and that was actually a, a, a something to do with accounting, but it relied on a written entry. Oh. You, you see what I mean? Yeah, I see what you mean. Look mm. at you with your comping tips. I so, like it. <laughs> I think that that's worthwhile. And it's in also places that you don't expect. For example, I think it was last year or um, two years ago, uh, I helped my partner because he's obsessed with AFL. And, of course, I mean, believe it or not, the AFL had a short story competition. Oh. So it had to be um, set in – something to do with sport. Right. Um, had to go with that, Val. Yeah, so maybe that's why we didn't win. <laughs> oh, did you even know what shape ball you had to use? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Sharon. That's okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, they, they, there are looking places that you don't expect because the yeah. prize for that was astounding. It was like a trip to LA, all expenses paid and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, the prizes for that are way larger than, you know, the, your traditional writing competitions, but you're using writing because it's a short story mm-hmm. and more things in AFL. And then you would get printed, your little story would get printed in the AFL. I don't even know what that magazine's called that the AFL have, AFL. Weekly. Report or record. So we should know that. (laughs) As as magazine industry gurus, we should know that. We're going to look that up. Yes. But the other thing that has happened this week, um, well, last week, uh, of course, um, the best-selling author, Colleen McCulloch, passed away and the internet exploded because of the obituary. Which was terrible. That was written by the Australian and that can't go... um, you know, unmentioned. No. Because they basically, um, in the second sentence, referred to her as plain of feature and clearly overweight, mm. which is so irrelevant. Mm. Um, and and everyone and and their obituary or their treatment of the obituary was reported around the world. It made headlines all throughout America. Mm. Um, yeah, and it, it was as it should have. It was terrible. And it was such a shame. And also, let's just talk about the Thornbirds because every single person that I know of a certain age in this country has either read the Thornbirds or saw that miniseries back in the 80s. And, and she, she, she made an amazing impact on the whole world yes. with that novel. Mm-hmm. And, like, let's talk about how great that was. And she wrote a whole range of other things which were also amazing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what? Like, let's think about that because I, that obituary was just so bad. I just couldn't even go there. I don't even know how they could – I don't even know how it could enter someone's brain that that would be an okay thing to write. I don't know either. Was, yeah, anyway. At least so. they waited till after she passed away because I do recall that there was a, a major newspaper in Australia. It wasn't that one, but a major newspaper in Australia that, um, you know, because when people do get on, they have obituaries on the shelf ready to go for when they mm. do pass so mm. that they they can print them immediately. And um, especially if you're a person of, with high profile. And this major newspaper in Australia printed it, but the person hadn't died yet. <gasps> That's awkward. That's awkward. 
the person was in a, a home, like a nursing home or a oh. you know aged care facility, and the poor nurses were trying to find every single copy of this paper they could find and hide it. <laughs> That's awful. Awful. Oh, it can all just go so horribly wrong there, can't it? It can. But anyway, um, we have an interesting, a very short link uh, um, called Tony Morrison on why writers have such a hard time writing about sex. Someone asked her this question and she replied, sex is difficult to write about because it's just not sexy enough. Oh, it's so true. The only way to write about it is not to write much. Let the reader bring him his own sexuality into the text. A writer I usually admire has written about sex in the most off-putting way. There's just too much information. If you start to say the curve of, <laughs> you soon sound like a gynecologist. <laughs> what are your so thoughts true. about writing about sex? I must admit I am very inexperienced in this area because I don't write about sex. Uh, but um, what do you I, think? Well, I I have and do occasionally write about sex and I have to say sex scenes are very, very difficult things to do because, as she said, it's as soon as you start writing it down, as soon as you start to try and put into words what's actually occurring, it's really hard because it's basically it comes down to the fact that it's not sexy. None of it sounds sexy. And the, <laughs> the most difficult thing you have is working out which bits are where at any given time so that your, you know, hero doesn't have three hands, which is entirely possible sometimes. Um, so, yeah, and what position people are in. Like it's a very strange thing. I, I, I um, learned a lot about writing. I learned a lot about sex and the mechanics of sex working at Clio, which oh, was yes. very helpful. Yes. And then when I was there, I used to write sealed sections about which were role play. I remember we did a whole sealed section on role play scripts. Yes. So, you know, to get people started. So <laughs> I was writing, you know, <laughs> and you say, and then he says. I mean, I couldn't actually, <laughs> I was in paroxysms of hysterical giggles having any concept of people actually using this stuff. You know, like the, I wrote I wrote a scene between, a you know, a tradesman and a, and a bored housewife. I wrote a scene about a couple of uh, people, two people who met on a train. I wrote, like, honestly, if, if, if anyone had actually tried them, they probably would also have been in hysterics. But anyway, that was all very, very good training um, <laughs> for when I did get around to writing hot romance novels. And I, I did um, co-author one that was uh, published in the US. And Yes, I wrote all the sex scenes in that particular book because my co-author was very squeamish about the sex, didn't want to do them, at, do it at all. So there I was, you know, doing all the bits. But I, I actually, like, it's very fun. It's fun to write, but it's very, it's a lot more difficult to write a sex scene that, that works than you could ever possibly imagine. Well, I suspect there's going to be a lot more people trying that out, especially because Fifty Shades of Grey, oh, the movie, is I know, it's back. Week. I saw it. I went down to my local Dimmicks the other day and there's the book right mm -hmm. at the front door again. And I'm like, why are we doing this again? It's going and of to course, have a second round. I know. And, you know, I read it the first hundred pages of the first book and then I stopped and that yes. was enough. And I can't imagine going to the movie. Like... Well, the trailer is being played on high rotation on television, so I have no doubt that many people will go to the movie. Well, I, I look forward to someone going to the movie and telling us what it's like. I might wait for it to come out on Foxtel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, listeners, there's a challenge for you. 
can you please go and see it and send us a report? Yes, tell us what it's like. Yeah, we want to know. We just don't want to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a couple of things uh, in the world of blogging this week. You we are celebrating do. a milestone. I am. I'm very excited. I am celebrating my, well, my, my little blog has just had its fifth birthday. Woo-hoo. So it's pretty much ready to go to school. Yeah. It's out from under my feet, which is yeah. very exciting. Um, so it, it was an interesting post to write because it was five years is a long time on the internet and I think my, my blog has changed quite a lot in that five-year period. Um, but I think the one thing I learnt, and I wrote the post, the one thing I've learnt in my fifth year of blogging um, was that as an author, it is worth it. And it's a question that I'm asked a lot. Why do you do it? You know, do authors need to blog? Why would an author blog? Um, well, I can say with confidence that having had the Mapmaker Chronicles come out last October, that all the hours, and I have put in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours into the blog, um, were worth it. Mm. Having the community rally around and um, all the sort of attention and social media uh, that I got from from that particular incident made made the whole thing worth it. But you can have a look at my blog post because I've shared all the thousand million things that I've learned in all my years of blogging. And if you are an author starting out and you are interested in blogging, then there are some um, thoughts and tips and things to get you started there. Yeah, it's a great post. So tell me, do you think you will be blogging in five another five years' time? I don't know. I, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Like probably because I don't quite know why I'd stop. I'm not quite sure what would make me stop. Mm. You know, now that I've started, there's just no shutting me up really. <laughs> um, I didn't want to start but once I got going, I found I had a lot to say. Um, you know, funny that. Uh, yeah, no, I've, I think things will change. Like, I, you know, things have changed so much. Blogging has changed. The landscape of blogging has changed so much in the five years that I've been doing it. Mm. Um, and now, of course, YouTube and podcasting and all that sort of stuff has been, you know, hugely um, – has had a huge, you know, rise. And I have to say that some of it does cannibalise the blog. Like so much, I do so many other things now, like with Facebook and newsletters and who knows what, but it does cannibalise the blog. But I think as far as having my own little home base on the internet and somewhere where I can just write whatever I want, mm. for that reason, I, I don't see myself stopping anytime soon. Yeah, it's mm. great. People expect it these days. It's almost weird if you don't have a blog. Yeah, to a degree, and mm. I and I think authors. Well, if you're a writer. Well, yeah, and I think authors have such a lot of interesting things to say, or they should do. Mm. Um, I hope I do. <laughs> God, I'm pretty dull as, but anyway. Um, so I think that look, it's it's just an easy way to get in touch with people. It's an easy way for people to find you, and it does take time. I'm not. I'm not in no way am I sort of underestimating that, but. Um, but as far as I want to, I, you know, I wake up in the morning and I think I really want to say that. I've got somewhere to put it and I think that that's important. How would you answer this question? Why do you blog? I blog to connect with people and I didn't realise that I did that until I started because what I realised is that I used to write articles and things like that and they used to go out into magazines and it was very, very exciting and I would see them there and then I would move on to the next thing. Mm. Everything I put on my blog is it's immediate like people comment on it immediately and there's 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 kind of there's you get a connection with people that you just don't get in any other way and I think it also helps to develop an intimacy of voice yes. that you just can't 
find any other way because you have to switch the broadcast off and you have to find that intimate tone that is going to make people talk back to you. And that's that's what I think I get out of it. People talk back to me. I love it. Yeah, fantastic. Hmm. Now, uh, we I have another link of a very different type of blog because I agree. I mean, I blog for sort of similar reasons to you. I don't think either of us monetize our blogs in the in, a, no. in the same way as some people. Mm-hmm. But um, a really interesting link that uh, came out this week was by Pat Flynn. Now, for people who aren't familiar with Pat Flynn, he runs a blog called the Smart Passive Income Blog. He was an architect, but he got laid off, you know, some a few years ago and decided he was going to try blogging. He's subsequently you know got a successful podcast and uh he he was recently in australia speaking at uh, the pro blogger event in the gold coast so pat lives in san diego and what he does every year and he's just done it for this year is he releases his annual income report and review so he lays it all out on the table what the amount of money he makes, where it all comes from, his different revenue streams, you know, what comes from the blog, what comes from the podcast, what comes from this website. And um, that's his full-time job. He blogs. Well, he blogs and podcasts and basically creates content. And uh, he made in 2014 $946,256.23. Oh, Pat, come (laughs) sponsor my writing now. Heavens. That's amazing. Yes. Oh, Valerie, we're doing it all wrong. These <laughs> <laughs> books flow right in these books. Goodness me, I don't know. That's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Now, the a lot of his income comes from he's got various um, revenue streams, and one is his the blog itself uh, and his podcast because he takes sponsorship on his podcast. Um, he's got two two podcasts that are around him. Um, he also has some uh, sites on really specific topics which he gains some passive income from. Like he has a website for food truckers. <laughs> if you're a food right. trucker, he has a website for security guards. <laughs> And he has a bunch of apps, but you know, which he he sells, and then that's a small amount, um, you know, of his revenue stream. So yeah, it's a it's a very interesting breakdown, and we'll put the link in the show notes. But he goes into very very great detail as to what went well, what didn't go well, what kind of things earn him his income, and what kind of things don't. So um, you know, good on Pat for laying it all out on the table, because as you say, I mean, sometimes people just don't talk about their their revenue which again is their prerogative as well and completely completely fine but he um lays it all out there go pat like really yeah go pat <laughs> <laughs> On all levels. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, our writer in residence this week is someone that you and I know, uh, Nigel Bartlett, because Nigel actually uh, teaches writing about interiors, style and design at the Australian Writers' Centre, but he is also a crime and thriller writer. So he's a really good example of somebody who does magazine writing as their full-time bread and butter gig because he works on a whole heap of different interiors, you know, Australia's top interiors magazines. Uh, but he also, um, you know, on the side, every Sunday will make sure he says no to his social engagements so that he can write his book. 
And wow. uh, we spoke about this last week. His book is called King of the Road. Now, I interviewed Nigel and I'll just give everyone a little bit of warning that uh, there's some drilling going on in the background. We hope it's not too annoying. <laughs> oh, but no. Nigel kind of was living in a construction zone when this occurred. Um, but, uh, you know, what he had to say is still really interesting and valuable. So we hope you enjoy Nigel Bartlett. Nigel Bartlett is a freelance writer and editor who has worked for many of the best-known publications in Australia. He is also a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre. He's a former deputy editor of GQ Australia and Inside Out magazines and has been a regular contributor to Bell and Sunday, the colour supplement of the Sunday Telegraph and Sunday Herald Sun. In addition, he's freelance for numerous other titles, ranging from Who to Sunday Life and Harper's Bazaar, as well as a number of high-profile websites. He's also completed a research master's in creative writing at the University of Technology, Sydney, and lives in the inner city suburb of Redfern. His debut novel is King of the Road. Thanks for joining us today, Nigel. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm very excited. I'm holding in my hand your book, King of the Road, and I will admit that um, I've got spaghetti bolognese kind of all over it. <laughs> Not quite all over <laughs> it, in bits of that's it. That's great for a book, I think, to look well-read, I think, and well written. Yes, but that is because uh, I started it two nights ago and uh, I was gripped from the very first page and I had to start cooking dinner. I don't have very exotic dinners, as you can tell, spaghetti bolognese. And I was holding the book with my left hand as I was trying to chuck in garlic and tomato and, you know, mince <laughs> and all of that with the, with the other hand and because I just couldn't put the book down. So, oh, that's so fantastic to hear. That's, a, that's kind of a wonderful recommendation, it's, really. Isn't it's it? the truth, yeah. So, but for lis- listeners who haven't read the book yet, can you fill them in, please, on what the book is about? Okay, so King of the Road is, deals with um, the main character is a 35-year-old guy who has quite a close relationship with his nephew, um, an 11-year-old boy called Andrew. Andrew stays with him once a, once a month for the weekend, and... Um, one particular weekend, um, Andrew goes out to visit a friend he's made nearby and doesn't come home. And so then there's a, so obviously David calls the police and through that process, um, David, the main character, then comes under suspicion himself. And I guess that's how the novel kicks off. That's, that's the very, you know, early part of the book. And the novel then kicks off with um, what's David going to do about it? Is he, is he going to sit there and wait while the, while the police investigate him and while perhaps other awful, awful things are happening to Andrew? Or is he going to take matters into his own hands? And so he has a decision to make. And um, never having been in this situation before, it's obviously quite a terrifying situation for him. And he then makes a decision and he decides to just go with it and... Uh, yeah, without wanting to give too much away, it's a, it then kicks off from there, I guess. Now, how in the world did you come up with this idea? Because it, it was gripping from minute one, as I said. And um, So did it brew in your head for a long time or did it just come to you like a lightning bolt? How, how, did, it's, it's, how did you come up with the idea? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, that's a, a really good question because it's actually – when looking back on how the story evolved, I, I actually – 
it was a big lesson for me in, in how writers write and what, or how I write. Um, when I started, when I came up with the idea, I thought it would be quite interesting to write a kind of literary stroke psychological examination of what happens if you lose a child, but it's not actually your child, it's your brother's child, um, and how that would affect your family, you know, how they would, what, how they react, the guilt that you would have, um, and all that sort of thing. It was meant to be sort of more a kind of a family drama, you know, that sort of thing. And then actually, you know, I wrote that pretty much the first half of the first draft that I wrote years ago was along those lines. And one day someone in my writing group at the time said, you know, Nigel, this is, this is, it's all great, but nothing's happening, you know. <laughs> and um, basically I thought, oh, God, she thinks it's boring. And um, <laughs> so then I decided to make things start to happen. And, um, um, you know, I carried on in that vein. And I suddenly thought, oh, this is actually a crime story or a crime thriller. And I went into a bit of a panic and I thought, oh, what am I going to This isn't what I meant to write. <laughs> Um, so I carried on with the first draft in that vein, feeling completely out of my depth. But then when I came to the second draft, I was like, I decided, right, this is now a crime thriller. And I plotted for the second draft, I plotted it out completely differently and moved a lot of things up to the front. And, um, you know, I kind of dispensed with this whole idea of, you know, people sitting around and having angsty conversations about, oh, what have you done to our family? I mean, that's in there a little bit, but it's not the whole premise of the book. Yeah. So, so really, once I got my head around the idea that, no, I think I might be able to do this, I just decided to go for it and, you know, decided to write a completely different book. Now, it seems that Nigel not only um, writes crime thrillers, he also lives in a construction site. What's going oh, on yes, in right. your background there, Nigel? Yes, so I have to apologise <laughs> for the sound of drilling that's um, started through my wall. Um, it's somewhere in my building. I live in apartment block and they've been renovating the outside of the, and the inside of different people's apartments and um, fortunately they've not had to do anything to mine but occasionally they you know, <laughs> get driven so sorry about that. That's alright, we will push on and add some authenticity to, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to the novel. So you have, this is your first novel correct? The first one I've completed and tried to get published right. yes. Now but you have been a writer for a long time, in fact I I was thinking about it the other day and I reckon I met you 14 years ago or almost 15 years ago actually at a um, – you came to a course I was teaching in magazine writing, although you were already you know, well established in the, in the industry. I think you were doing it more as a refresher. And so you have – tell people a bit about your background, what, you know, what you've been doing in your career thus far. Sure. Okay. Yes. Um, uh, that's right. That's the first time I met you. It was, it was uh, at a, I think it was the University of Sydney evening class. And um, but prior to that, I'd been working for um, some of the the big name gossip magazines, um, New Idea, um, and previously Woman's Day, and then prior to that, New Weekly, which is now NW. Um, and um, I'd been a sub-editor and chief sub-editor on, on those magazines, uh, which involves editing other people's copy and writing headline captions and all that sort of thing. And then since then, I've been deputy editor of um, quite a glamorous-sounding magazine called GQ Australia and um, another magazine called Inside Out. Um, but apart from that, since then, I've been freelance writing and freelance sub-editing for magazines and websites um, 
uh, in Australia, primarily in Australia. And your protagonist is actually a freelance writer who lives in an apartment that probably has construction going on. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to say, I had to laugh when, um, you know, he, he felt the need to fix some apostrophes because <laughs> I can totally relate to that. Um, but there's this, you, you said that you started the first draft or the, the first version of the story several years ago. Can you just take us through the key sort of milestones in the evolution of what started off as a family drama, a bit like The Slap, mm. I suppose, and mm. evolved into a crime thriller? Okay. So, um, and how long ago, you know, the time frames? Yeah, so I always um, – I have to preface the time frame thing with the, by saying that Yes, I actually started the novel in 2006, and that was having written a short story using a similar sort of theme um, prior to that. But so 2006 to um, until now, it sounds like an incredibly long time, but of course I was working full-time, and sometimes I took a year out while I was in a particularly stressful job and that sort of thing. Um, so I started writing it as part of a course I was doing, a, a university master's in writing, and... Um, um, yeah, so I did, the, as I say, I did that first draft over a relatively long period of time, maybe a year and a half, I think. And then, you know, this, I, did, I ended up doing six drafts before I sent it to an agent. I sent it to an agent in 2012. I'd, I'd read and heard quite a lot about how it's best not to send out a, 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 um, your work until you're really confident that you've got it to the best it possibly can be so each of those drafts was really uh, you know a case of um, um, after the second draft where I was clearly knew it was going to be a crime thriller each of the subsequent drafts were kind of layering in new aspects to the story adding in scenes changing characters taking out scenes Changing the writing, you know, I found a lot of problems in the writing that was really disheartening. I was like, oh, this is terrible, I'll never do this. Um, and all, all the way through, just it, each different draft was another sort of maybe adding, adding in a, another layer of perhaps, perhaps com complexity or um, extra scenes just to, to flesh out certain, certain aspects of it and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Did you have to do a lot of research because, you know, there, there's, there's police involved, there's different mm. procedures, there's ch children involved? What, what, did you have to do a lot of research for this book? Yeah, the research I did, um, I, I did it as I was going along. So style would tend to be that I would write a scene or, or write a certain way into the book and then would think, okay, I've written that, but actually I really need to find out if that's how it really would be done. Or if, if um, so for instance, with the, some of the police scenes, um, I discovered someone I know who is a, um, a police officer, a, a detective with the New South Wales Police. And so I was able to run, uh, I showed him sections of the book that had police involvement, and he gave me feedback and said, um, that's fine, but actually they would probably do this, or yes, that, that's fine, no problem with it, or you would probably need a reason why the police would do this. And, and it was just so valuable. Um, as for a lot of the um, um, Facebook-type sort of things and social media, I, I, I did a lot of that as I went along. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i a big social media user myself. Um, 
a lot of things like places and that sort of thing, I would write them and then I would go and visit the place myself. Um, I just, personally, I just, I'm, I'm not a fan of, for me anyway, of doing heaps and heaps and heaps of research that I might never use in advance, doing the research in advance. Uh, although I did spend a few days, uh, I did spend some time actually at, um, in libraries reading about things that um, I had no other access to, um, such as certain investigations that take place and, and that sort of thing. Now, uh, it's peppered with a lot of really relatable things like um, The Biggest Loser and um, King G and Jason Ackermanis and stuff like that. Right. Is that something that you came naturally to you as you wrote or did you feel that you needed to insert that later to make the story, you know, more real or more relatable? Um, no, those pretty much came as I was writing. They just would be... Um, Things that I, you know, I'm a big fan of pop culture um, uh, and all sorts of things. Um, so they, they just really came in the writing. However, um, because of the time frame over which I wrote the book, some of them had to, I had to go back and change some of them. So what was, you know, what I might have written in, you know, a TV show that might have been relevant. Yes. 2006, yes, yeah, yeah, let's not dwell too much on the embarrassingly long time. Um, but, but yeah. You know, all sorts of things changed. Um, so I just had to update them at certain times. Sure. And, uh, yeah. Now, as a sub-editor, you know, you're used to, because you've trained as a sub-editor, so you're used to actually mm. fixing other people's copy or making other people's copy sound better. So you're in a constant state of editing. How did, did you, did you do that to yourself? Did you edit yourself as you go? Did you have to stop yourself from editing as you go because you were so, that's so ingrained in you? Um, I did, yeah, so I didn't edit as I wrote, so um, I, I, I didn't do much uh, going back and reviewing what I'd written with that purpose of, of editing, as I, I, I just want to keep moving forward. However, I did go back and read what I'd just written so that I knew where to kick off from. But when I, after I'd completed any, any of the drafts, um, when I was reading it afterwards, I was doing a lot of subbing, I guess, then, you know, like... After I think the second or third, the second draft, I think I, I noticed that I used the phrase a bit or a little over and over and over again, and it just made the writing so wishy-washy. You know, he'd say, "I'm feeling a bit angry," or "I'm feeling," and I, I must say it. I think I think it must be something I say naturally. So I just so lots of red lines all the way through. Yes. Um, and it wasn't just that, but all sorts of things. You know, that that that, that I noticed in when I was editing that those drafts. Um, I think that was part of the sub editor's eye, maybe that that came to that. But, you know, yeah. So you you freelance full time, and when you got say up to your sixth draft or your, the final draft before you sent it off the first time, did you have chunks that you were um, just fully dedicated to the manuscript, or were you? always writing it on the side, if you know what I mean? And if so, how did you structure your day to fit it in? Or when did you write it? So, yeah, that's right. Um, So my style of freelancing is generally um, to go into other people's offices because most of my freelancing is sub-editing, plus I do some freelance writing. Um, So pretty much I work a 9 to 5.30 day. So um, usually I write on a Sunday. That's you know I just say to friends if ever I get invited to any social engagement on a Sunday, it's like I just say sorry, that's my writing day. Wow, very and, disciplined of you. 
<laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, even, you know, going to the beach and that sort of thing usually is out of the question on my Sundays. Um, I did have a spell where I'd write before work in the mornings. Um, um, not for very long. But, but in answer to your question, there were times where I would take um, maybe um, four weeks off at a time. Uh, I didn't do that a huge amount, but, um, but I would do that. I did do that a couple of times to try and you know get to the end of a draft or or edit do some editing but essentially you did it part-time or you know on yes. Sundays really absolutely absolutely yeah. I think that's yeah. really heartening for some people or hopefully encouraging for some people who work full-time and mm. who think that they don't have the time but you chipped away at it every mm. Sunday and was really disciplined about it mm. yes yeah, so it didn't feel very disciplined because even on a Sunday I would wake up and watch the Insiders, which is my favourite Sunday morning show, and then, you know, potter around and then get down to writing, and it often might not be till 11 o'clock or something. And But, you know, it is actually amazing how much you can get done if you just say to yourself, I'm not going out today, and I'd go out in the evenings possibly, but, um, um, you know, I now I now have a day free during the week as well. I've decided to keep a day free oh. during the week. So, and the, the, what I've had to say to myself is I'm not going to use that day for any medical appointments or any chores I need to fill, do, you know, if I was working five days a week, I would fit it in around those. So I'm just going to do everything on my other four days and keep that day for writing. Right. Um, Because otherwise, just too many other things get in the way of it. Yeah, exactly. Now, Mm. you, it is, it did evolve to become a crime thriller. Um, Mm. Were you a fan of that genre before? Um, (laughs) Because it's, it's, it's such a, crime thriller book you know what I mean oh that's good to hear that's good to hear that was one of my nervousness things that I was nervous about when I suddenly realized oh this is turning into a crime I didn't even know it was a crime novel I just thought it had was a crime I didn't know it was a crime thriller I thought it was just some sort of a crime novel um that was one of the things I was nervous about because actually in in the years preceding that I hadn't read, read a lot of crime um so suddenly I did start reading crime. I, you know, my mum and dad were big fans of Ian Rankin, for example, so I started reading Ian Rankin. I asked around different people f- for their ideas and got lots of names. And, and now pretty much most of what I read, I'd say 80% of what I read is, is crime. And, um, uh, but actually when I stop and think about it, when I was a teenager, I used to love things like Agatha Christie, which isn't quite the same as this. But, but also I remember being on holiday once with some friends and they were laughing at me because I was reading a John Grisham book and they were all being a bit snooty about it. But I remember thinking, wow, I'm, I read that book in two days flat. And any of the other sort of more literary novels that I used to th- like to read or think I should read would take me months to read, you know, yes. or weeks to read anyway. So um, I think I, I, I just uncovered something that I had always loved but hadn't quite wanted to admit. So does, are you on your second book, a second novel? Have you started writing it? Is it a crime thriller? I have started writing it. Um, I haven't got very far into it, but yes, it is a crime thriller. And um, uh, yes, I, I've started it and I've, um, uh, I've got quite a lot of the story evolving in my head mm-hmm. and I, I've, I'm only a couple of chapters into it so far. Right, so you're going to continue down the crime vein. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I um, you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll write other things. I, I, my actual all-time favourite authors aren't crime writers. They're, they're people like Anne Tyler, who writes those sort of family dramas, and I think she's a beautiful writer. Um, but whether, 
you know, I don't want to necessarily emulate her, but, um, you know, there's a lots of other things I would like to do in the whole big scheme of things. But at the moment, I, I, I do love crime and crime thrillers. Well, yeah. you seem to have nailed it because I read this one in two days flat and I've already cast the movie, just so you know. Oh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. I already know who is playing every part. So right, just come okay. and can, consult with me if, if you need okay. advice on that. I'll get Steven Spielberg to talk to you. When he's yeah, no paid. problem. <laughs> Joel Edgerton, just so you know, oh, is, the, um, is uh, David. Uh, cool. Roger Corsa yeah, is Cam. Oh, excellent! Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, the kid from Puberty Blues and Paper Planes is the is is the child. Oh, excellent! Well, and done. Vince yeah. Colosimo is Maddie. Ah, excellent! Yes, no, they're all very oh, good. Oh, and Faraz Durrani is um, fired. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that one works. Very well. yeah. <laughs> Although we shouldn't be planting in readers. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> make up their own exactly. minds because obviously people will see things differently. But um, exactly. They, but no, that's great. Well, I'll get my people to talk to your people yeah. so you can take a cut of the casting. Yeah, no problem. It's already sorted. So, what do you think? Up when you got to draft six, made it work. What do you think you did? What was your breakthrough? Apart from obviously realizing it was a crime book, that 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 just held it together. Mm. You know what? There were some things when I was writing it that weren't answered for me. You know, as in, um, so I so while I was writing it, questions got set up. You know, certain characters, certain things happened. Um, that even I didn't know what the answer was going to be. And I think when I had finally, whether that happened in sixth draft or fifth draft, it was probably probably more like fifth draft, where I had finally tied up all those loose ends and, and um, seen how this happening in chapter three, for example, when it gets to chapter 18, for example, that all ties in and it's all solved and answered or whatever it is I think that's where I really started to think okay this is you know I'm getting a bit more relaxed about this now um, because as you probably know from you know well I don't know if this is the same for everyone but certainly for me you know writing can be quite an anxious process because there's always this sort of thing of uh, is this going to come together and have I done something there that's going to lead me into a complete uh, lead me up against a brick wall there and, and this sort of thing. Um, so when I finally had all those kind of things, okay, I think these work. Um, I felt more comfortable. So they, they were, that sounds like they were issues of plot and things that to, to make sense. How about um, in terms of, because there's, as a reader, I really wanted to read on. It was a lot of suspense. It was a really good pacing. Did you have to – did that come naturally to you or did you – because I know some authors really plan that out, you know, making sure mm-hmm. that the, the pacing is just right in each section. What, what was mm-hmm. it for you? Um, I didn't plan – I didn't really – oh, well, yes, did I plan that, plan, do, do much planning? Maybe in the second draft I did have much more of a plot, but it wasn't really – you know, I read about authors who – plot out meticulously and, and I don't think mine was very meticulous. I think um, I do think that when setting it aside for setting each draft aside for a certain period of time and then read, sitting down and reading it um, gave me a good sense of you know, having, I think I said earlier that I crossed out things in each draft but some of them I just would actually cross out 
huge great paragraphs or you know where it's where I just felt no, this is just dragging on too long um so it was really in the re- reading of the draft that I got that sense of whether the pacing was uh, possibly right or, 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 or not. So I think that's how it worked for me, really. Sort of writing it and then reading it, trying to read it as someone outside mm. might read it. Mm. When which is quite difficult to it do. It is very difficult to do. When you, were, when you first started the book, did you know how it was going to end? Not exactly, no, not exactly. No, 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 I didn't actually. When I first started the book, no, I didn't have any idea how it was going to end. Uh, no, that's the short answer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's your advice to people who, uh, you know, they've, they've got their manuscript sort of written or, or mm. a chunk of it written and they're thinking, oh, my God, I want to get published one day. What's your advice to them? Okay, so... If they've got a chunk of it written, a, a fair uh, chunk of it written, fair chunk of it written, okay, or, or even if it's if they've got it finished, um, I for what's really been of benefit for me has been somehow I managed to, and it wasn't really intentional, but somehow I managed to find myself mixing in the world of writing. Um, um, you know, I, I, I from being on courses, I met other people who were also writing novels and of course some of them ended up being published and um they had already become friends of mine um and so talking to them about what they did how they sent out their proposals um really helped a lot but also i i just think that i was incredibly fortunate that i had some really lucky breaks in terms of the people i met and became friends with i mean um you know someone recommended me to her agent so P.M. Newton, the crime writer, recommended me to her agent, which, so that when I was then approaching that agent, Sophie Hamley, it just made life so much easier that I could um, approach her and say, oh, I believe um, Pam has um, mentioned my name to you. And so it made that link a lot easier. And not obviously everyone's going to have that um, advantage. Well, but, I um, disagree. I would like to say that that came as a result of networking. And if, if you just need, yeah. if you sit at home and don't meet anybody, <laughs> if yeah. you would never, you, that would never have happened to you. So the point is, I believe, um, to, mm. to, to be proactive in getting out there, as I you say, so. and getting out and networking and, and being in workshops, in courses, in, mm. in groups. And, and um, the, the, the publishing industry isn't that huge in Australia. There, you, there will be a two degrees of separation if you mm. actually get out there, I think. Um, yeah. Now, uh, listeners may be surprised to also know that not only did, does Nigel do sub-editing and write crime thrillers and live in a construction site, <laughs> um, he, he also writes uh, um, for many uh, interiors magazines and teaches writing about interiors, style and design at the Australian Writers' Centre. So that's a whole other string to your bow. That's right, that's right yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, do, what do you enjoy about writing about interiors? I, yeah, interiors. I've always, I've always been really interested in. Like it, it, even as a teenager, one one of the things I wanted to do as a career was uh, be either an architect or an interior designer. Um, I, I actually wanted to be an interior designer, but I used to say I wanted to be an architect because I thought it sounded too gay to want to be an interior designer. And now I wouldn't care about that. But um, uh, anyway, I wasn't very. 
artistic, you know, and I wasn't very good at math, so I was never going to be able to do architecture. Um, but I always had that interest. So um, uh, it, as much as anything, it's being able to look inside other people's homes and have a sticky beak around and all that sort of thing. Um, and what I love about teaching it is that the people who come along are such a wide range of people. They might be um, people who are starting out as magazine writers um, or web or blog writers. They might be people who've already been doing that sort of thing for a while and want a new string to their bow. Or they might be stylists and interior designers who then want to learn how to write. And so we always get a really good mix and get a lot of um, kind of cross-fertilization of, of, of ideas and how pe different people do things. And uh, we also have, usually we have a lot of fun on that course as well. Uh, well, you're definitely a multi-genre writer, <laughs> Nigel. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, um, I think, as I've mentioned, I think the book is awesome. I, I believe it's going to do brilliantly. Um, so congratulations. And, um, Thank you so uh, much. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And I will now leave you to your construction site. And, Thank <laughs> and you. Writing your second novel. <laughs> Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. So there you go, Nigel, with drilling. Fantastic. <laughs> Poor Nigel. I feel his pain because the people next door to me are currently painting their house and the whole place has just been pressure washed and sanded oh. for painting, which just, and it's not just that, but the painters are really nice, but they like to play the radio really loud. Oh, yep. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. 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 What's our web pick for this week? Ah, well. We've actually got not just one, but we have a hundred, which right. no, is just a bonus, don't you think? Sure. So PCMag.com has put, to get, put together a list of the 100 best iPad apps of 2015. Okay. And so I think that there's got to be something there for everyone. So um, I'm going to put the link in the show notes and um, – there's a, there's a great little one there that I've got an eye on for my children, which is um, called Hopscotch. Oh, yes. And it's an app that teaches basic computer program concepts to oh, kids cool. aged 8 to 12. So it's sort of like coding um, for, you know, beginners. So I'm going to download that one for the boys because they love a little bit of animation and some video game action and stuff. So um, I think they'll enjoy that. But are there any there that you see? Anything that um, you would like? There's a few. An interesting one they've got there is Penultimate. I don't know if you've heard of Penultimate, but it's basically like where you can use a stylus and you can write on your iPad and uh -huh. then it will you know, it will store like almost like as a notebook page and then you can subsequently email that to yourself or, or, or feature it in something. So it's good if you like doodling or if you like the actual look of written, you know, stuff mm. instead of typing it out. But, of course, when I first read about it, I thought, this is so cool, and I went straight to JB Hi-Fi and I bought a stylus oh. and – have you ever used it? <laughs> I think I used it that first day and that's it. It's a little bit like your seven-minute workout. Let's ask about Shall we just bring <laughs> no, that again? We won't Should we bring, bring that, that up again no, for a we recap? Won't, we won't bring that back <laughs> up again. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, um, there's a whole range of different uh, types of, of apps there and I'm sure that um, if you're looking for something new and exciting, there'll be something there for you. I'm yes. really keen well, on you that. You might hopscotch. end up just doing what I do and downloading them all and using them once. Yes. Or you could do that too. Yes. So, 
We have a really interesting working writers tip this week because this was a question that was asked in one of our graduate groups. And I'm going to ask you the question so you can give us your take on it. Um, How do you find out who the PR is for a particular product or business or service, you know, or whatever? So... I sort of, when I first read the question, I thought, well, that's really obvious. But then I realised, well, no, that's because we've been in the industry for so long, we know how to do it. Uh, And I think it's worthwhile explaining in case people want to know. (laughs) To be perfectly honest with you, I don't know that I do know how to do it because I would just ring the company. Exactly. It's as simple as that, I think. (laughs) I was thinking there must be some trick that I've missed in all these years. I would call the company and say, who's your PR person? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. as simple as that. So whatever product or service or whatever, call the company, um, ask for you know their PR person, whether they have someone on staff mm. or whether they use someone external. Yeah. Um, if they don't have a PR person, just say whoever it is that deals with journalists yeah. and the media yeah. and they'll be able to direct you the right person. It may take, you know, two or three goes or, or two or three, you know, gates that you need to go through before you find the right person, but that's the best way to start. Just ask oh. the company. Simple as that. Thank heavens. I'm so glad I got that right because <laughs> I was worried for a moment there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it is as simple as it that. It is as simple as that. Okay. So thank you to everybody who has been who been leaving um, – reviews on iTunes we really appreciate it and uh, it really helps us in the rankings so um, thank you for keeping us in the what's hot section we want to do a shout out to Lisa Terps who said listening to you girls each week while driving to my day job is the only thing that motivates me to go to work I love your show so much that I feel a sense of grief after I listen knowing that I have to wait another week for a new one the author author interviews are so good that not only have I listened to every episode I'm now listening to the whole series all over again Thank you for your funny banter and endless stream of tips and insights. You sparkle. Well, Lisa, you've made our day. You have. I feel very sparkly now. Thank you so much for that. Thank you to Lisa and everyone else who has left a review. We really appreciate it. We do. So this brings us to the end of our podcast this week. You know, hopefully you you don't have a sense of grief after we end. Um, But we kind of appreciate it in a sense if you do. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. If you want to find the show notes, it's writerscentre.com.au slash podcasts. Alison, where can we find you on social media? Uh, you will find me on, on Twitter at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer if you would like to come and say hello. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter uh, and just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook as well. would love to connect with you and do um, tweet us your feedback or any questions that you might have. We really appreciate connecting with you. So and don't forget your reviews of the Fifty Shades yeah, News. That's okay? Right. We're relying on you people. It's being released on Valentine's Day. Like I wonder who's actually gonna go with that. Oh, date. do you know that Valentine's Day is also International Book Giving Day? Ah, give so, away all your copies of Fifty Shades of Grey. Give a book, people. Give a book with a little heart-shaped bookmark if you must. Yes. <laughs> all, right. all right. Until next week, thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.